You are listening to the Things Learned Podcast. My name is Steve, and these are some notable things that I learned during the 13th and 14th weeks of 2012. In this episode, I'll discuss how I learned about item shops in Dungeons and Dragons, the origins of the Amish and the Mennonites, NetBeans and its Python plugin, the Python programming language itself, the transport layer in networking, Facebook's timeline feature, how to make an air cannon out of a cardboard box, Photoshop's content-aware fill feature, the Dosa Keys Man, and the pioneer of anesthesia. It'll be a fun variety of topics. March 26th. You can apparently buy items in shops in Dungeons & Dragons. According to the D&D 3.5 Player's Handbook, one of the player's many possible actions is to bargain with a shopkeeper, who may offer certain kinds of items. Of course, your experience will come down to your DM's ability to design and plan a campaign, but in addition to naturally coming across weapons, armor, or other amenities, shops may also fill the need. Page 215 of the Second Player's Handbook discusses how one would carefully balance their budget in the shops, ensuring they have necessities of dungeon delving as well as weapons, ability enhancers, armor, and other various stat-boosting items. You know, the basics. An article on Tribality.com argues that shops work against immersion and world-building of the campaign, but honestly, if done right, it's fine in my opinion. Apparently the 4th edition of D&D was better balanced, such that shops were less of a necessity. But at this point in early 2012, the 4th edition was still in a very early playtesting phase, and RDM much rather preferred to go with the trusty version 3.5e. March 27th, the origins of the Amish and the Mennonites. Another day, another class lecture on the topic of church reforms. On this day, this whole week really, we were discussing magisterial versus radical reform. This was where things continued to get ugly, in which the latter resulted in many killings, with nearly 100,000 deaths in Central Europe by the 1520s. There was Luther and Zwingli on the more magisterial side, despite their differences of opinion, while Thomas Munzer was more of the chaotic, revolutionary, and apocalyptic radical side of things. You know, a real party guy. However, like Zwingli, he also dies rather early in 1525, and his message doesn't end up traveling all that far. Topics like these eventually lead to breakaway reform groups such as the Amish and the Mennonites, two offshoots of the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were centered around southern Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and Moravia. They wanted adult baptism and supported pacifism, especially after being pulled into the peasant wars and seeing the gruesome results. The Mennonites and the Amish believed they must operate away from society in a purely God-run community. This particular fact drop came right at the end of the lecture and was assigned as further reading in between classes. March 28th. NetBeans has a specific Python edition. One of the more difficult aspects of the internet is trying to research something from more than five to seven years ago. 
You may have encountered this yourself in which either a certain technology evolves so quickly to the point of being difficult to research its history after countless progressions. In my case, I'm chasing the breadcrumbs of the concept of NetBeans and its ability to edit files written in the Python programming language. Luckily, I was able to find a few articles from the old days, albeit in somewhat abandoned or rotting form. Combine this with my archived class notes and files from the era, and I think I have a more complete picture now. So NetBeans is a rather... janky editor program, primarily for writing, debugging, and running Java code. It seems my undergrad was plagued with bad editing applications, as my freshman year introduced me to the mess that is Dr. Java, another annoyingly conceived IDE for the language that made me just want to scream. It wasn't until later in the late 2010s that I came across simpler editors for these languages that I actually enjoyed using, such as Notepad++ and Visual Studio Code. Tangent aside, back in the dark ages, NetBeans was what the professor recommended we use. I was already somewhat familiar with it from a previous database design class in which we had to write some Java code to interact with it. You may recall when I discussed this back around episode 50, where the previous fall semester was all about that kind of stuff. So anyways, if you want to use NetBeans for Python, you have to load in the Python plugin for it, and then you are golden. I needed this in order to work on an assignment in which we had to create a really simple web server that could handle student signups for a lab. In my assignment, I left a comment warning that the code was woefully insecure and potentially exposed my laptop to the network in a very vulnerable fashion. The early 2010s sure were something in terms of security, or lack thereof. A lot of the sample code I had that contained hyperlinks on the page were all prefixed with HTTP without an S in sight. All of this would come in handy for the following day, because wait until I tell you about... March 29th, the Python programming language. Thank you for bearing with me on that punchline. Ironically, I think these two things learned really should have been reversed, but I didn't write the curriculum. Today, we had a special Python seminar for our networking class to assist us with the third assignment in the course. The professor at least provided plenty of sample code to get us started, but it was still a lot to take in. The class was primarily networking-oriented, but apparently we all had to tap into our computer science skills to be able to code a web server from the ground up in Python, albeit with some somewhat helpful guidance along the way. Python was created in 1992 and was intended to be a friendly language for prototyping applications. It was cross-platform and was designed for use with almost anything and remains a very popular language today, alongside PowerShell, my personal weapon of choice. We were given an excerpt from a textbook that contained a primer on coding UDP and TCP servers and clients in Python as a springboard. My actual submitted assignment seemed pretty coherent, albeit crude. There's literally no security built into this particular use case, nobody in the right mind should ever consider coding a modern web server like this without further precautions. For education, though, this was adequate enough to get the point across regarding basic use of Python and integrating it with network functionality. March 30th. Transport layer uses port numbers for addressing. Moving right along with the same class, 
Our networking series concludes in this episode with the concept of the OSI network model. This stack of layers is ordered from 7 to 1 as follows. Application, Presentation, Session, Transport, Network, Data Link, and Physical. Today's lecture is specifically focused on the fourth layer, known as the transport layer. Transmission Control Protocol slash Internet Protocol, or TCP IP, exists in this layer, along with the concept of port numbers. While a server may have one or more addresses known as IP addresses, there's a subsystem referred to as multiplexing which uses ports to assign services to, and applications can then connect to the corresponding port on the corresponding IP address to access what they need. The most common ports are 80 and 443 for hypertext transfer protocols insecure and secure iterations, respectively. Other common and semi-standard port numbers exist as well, but is not set in stone for everyone. The higher the port number, the more loosey-goosey it's likely going to be. Let's say, for example, I want to host a really cool media server using the open-source software known as Jellyfin. I have a server with an IP address of 192.168.1.4. I configure Jellyfin with its default port assignment, which just so happens to be port 8096. Once it's all stood up, I access Jellyfin in a web browser by going to the address of 192.168.1.4 and then adding a colon 8096 to the end to get there. This is basically how ports work in a very simplified explanation. I mostly already knew about ports from past experience with having to configure firewalls for allowing various traffic in and out of a network for a very specific application known as Secure Shell. It was nice to get a more formal explanation of the matter after learning it on my own self-guided path. I also technically learned this in high school, but that was way before I had a half-decent grasp on the concept. And often, if you relearn something multiple times over, you can sometimes get a better idea of it. April 1st. Facebook timeline didn't roll out to everyone despite them saying they did. April Fools! If you hang around a social network long enough, one might see substantial changes as the industry evolves and companies try to do new things to either stay relevant or react to some changing company mission. Whatever it is, it's bound to upset some folks, or just downright confuse people. In this case, maybe we had a little bit of both. I've been around the internet long enough to witness the life and times of the static web 1.0 era where simple HTML was king. Then eventually, as computers and internet speeds got faster, social networks slowly started taking hold, albeit in modest forms such as LiveJournal, Friendster, Zanga, and of course, MySpace. We all know what happened to MySpace though, despite its meteoric rise in popularity, followed by an incredible implosion. Facebook was seen as the sensible alternative at the time, with no annoying, computer-crippling profile stylings with auto-starting embedded flash animations, nor ear-piercing music heard upon visiting one's profile page. Facebook was a move back to basics with uniform design focused on straight connections and maturity. The problem is, Facebook became a problem after just a few years, with questionable changes being made to the site which increasingly alienated folks. Albeit, not to the point where they wanted to leave the site just yet. Let's jump ahead to 2012. Profile pages are getting reworked into this new thing called the timeline. 
It was intended to display information about someone in one continuous feed as opposed to clicking around in tabs and categories. It was also possible to jump to many years into the past and view very old posts quickly. It was met with rather mixed reception. It was a fundamental change to how the site was used up to that point, which unsettled plenty of people I knew at the very least. So, to get to the point of today's loosely defined thing learned, I think I can trace this back to a Wired article, which was erroneously stating that the timeline was rolling out to everyone, when in reality it was only being pushed for brand pages, at least for the time being. Everyone would get it eventually, but a miscommunication led to the confusion here. The timeline ended up being a long-standing feature, which is still fundamentally around to this day in mostly unchanged form, beyond a few minor adjustments. In retrospect, it was a major shift away from the classic Facebook era to what would be considered the modern design of social media, for better or worse. April 2nd, a kill in League of Legends equals two and a half minion waves. Did you know? Well, now you know. In the last episode, I talked about what the concept of creep score and lane freezing was in League of Legends. And now it was time to learn that simple math dictated that the gold reward yielded for killing a player-controlled opponent is equivalent to the creep score of roughly two and a half minion waves, at least at the time of the notation of this thing learned. If you were trying to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with an opponent, a kill's difference definitely widens the gap, altering the balance and pace of the lane phase. Little things like this are what contribute to the chess master-like skill sets of professional players in League. April 3rd, how to make an air cannon out of a box. Now this is fun stuff. Things that feel like magic, don't really matter all that much, but are unbelievably cool. I'm not entirely sure where I learned this neat little trick, but I found a YouTube video from February of 2012, which I'll consider to be close enough for the purposes of remembering this. It's a pretty simple concept. Take a box with a decent amount of breathing room inside it, cut a hole in one side, making sure all others are decently sealed, and then clap the perpendicular sides to release a burst of air. As a bonus, if you load it up with smoke from a smoke machine, as the video in the show notes will demonstrate, you can shoot visible air projectiles so you can tell what you're aiming at before it makes contact. Pretty cool, huh? If I had to guess, this might have been some kind of experiment we were doing at the TV station. But honestly, I have little memory of this one, which is a real shame considering how awesome it is. I had four different work shifts sandwiched around the one class of the day on this Tuesday, April 3rd, so maybe someone was in one of the offices around the campus making one of these cannons. Who knows? April 4th. Sort of figured out content-aware fills in Photoshop. Select the area, click the edit menu, click fill, and then content-aware fill, and then click OK. That's what my notes from this time state. Added in Photoshop CS5, the then-current edition of the software, the content-aware fill is a neat little feature in which Photoshop attempts to analyze the immediate area around it and fill it with related content, such as clouds or trees or something. It's not perfect, and it can definitely lead to some rather hilarious misfires, but when it works, it's pretty great. It's sort of like the clone stamp tool and spot healing brush, 
just somewhat combined and taken to the next level. I had fun using it in moderation, and it's a handy tool to be aware of, no pun intended. April 5th, the Dos Equis Man owns a house in Vermont. I don't always care about memes, but when I do, I prefer the classics. Jonathan Goldsmith, often known by folks of a certain age as the Dos Equis Guy, has seven decades worth of acting experience, going as far back as 1963 in the film Act One. He is also on 2018's Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, for what it's worth. An article from NewYorker.com in 2011 talks about how he recently moved to Vermont, allegedly to avoid the constant public recognition. Quote, he can hardly walk half a block without someone asking, are you the guy? After lunch, the goldsmiths went to the New York boat show at the Javits Center, where less interesting men whispered as he passed. He strode by the powerboats in search of something with a sail. He stopped at the booth of Beneteau, the company that built his boat, a 47.3-foot sloop, and made small talk about the 58. We went down to Annapolis to see it, Goldsmith said. We decided to buy a house in Vermont instead, end quote. Fame can have an effect on you, and obviously it can get very tiresome to be only known for one thing, and doubly so if you've had a much more impactful career in the past that somehow gets overlooked for something as trivial as a beer commercial. By this logic, I totally understand Goldsmith's desire to get away from it all, and having been to Manchester, Vermont myself, I can confirm that's a pretty good start. And finally, April 6th. Jon Snow is basically the pioneer of anesthesia. This was another topic in the modern world history class I was in. Before the name became more common with Game of Thrones, Jon Snow was a historical milestone in the medical field. In 1831, he treated cholera patients. Thinking the outbreak was rooted in social conditions of the mine workers in Killingworth Colliery, he set out to become versed in medicine. He plays a defining role in the battle against cholera and researched anesthetic for surgery and more accurate results. He had a theory that people living below the Thames River should have been significantly more prone to the disease than those living above. He theorized that the outbreak was waterborne and created a distribution map in 1854 known as the Ghost Map. Originally conceived by Edmund Cooper, the work was continued and completed by Jon Snow, tracing the outbreak, marking black bars to represent deaths. What made this significant was the way in which the information was presented and while it didn't fully find the source of the disease, it pushed the industry forward and assisted in improving fact-finding for infectious diseases. As for his anesthesia work, Stephen Johnson's book with lengthy title of The Ghost Map, The Story of London's Most Terrifying Epidemic and How It Changed Science, Cities, and the Modern World, discusses how he administered chloroform to Queen Victoria in 1853 to assist in delivering her eighth child. Snow also designed a specific inhaler for anesthesia that could better control its delivery to the patient. Overall, he would perform more than 5,000 procedures involving anesthesia in 12 years, which also contributed to moving the industry forward. So if you ever require a procedure that needs to put you under, think of Jon Snow for making life-saving surgery exponentially less painful. That about does it for the things learned during these two weeks. I skipped only a few days, 
one of which I actually covered in last episode's after-show section regarding the Apple hiring process. It was a two-part thing learned in an awkward spot that technically could have spanned two episodes, but for simplicity's sake, along with trying to avoid being redundant, I left it all in episode 60. As for other things learned that were skipped, I decided we've probably had enough of D&D for now, so I decided to spare you the topic of the Rage Mage class. Furthermore, I feel I'd just become a Wikipedia article if I were to simply describe how to play Pugna in Dota 2. I'd like to give a little shout-out to OnlyOffice document editors for deleting the original first draft of this episode. Seems there's a nasty bug in version 7.0.1.37 that deletes files saved to network locations. A fair chunk of this particular episode was written in a different prose, and while I did my best to recreate it, I don't think I did it justice compared to the original first draft. I'm over it, and I'm also writing this in a different word processor application instead, to avoid that issue repeating itself. Anyways, let's talk about a few bonus topics to round off these two weeks. On March 25th, I downloaded Draw Something, right when it was exploding in popularity. I remember this was the game that prompted me to buy a stylus for my second generation iPad. This was long before the Apple Pencil, so these were simply pen-shaped utensils with a rubber tip at the bottom such that it could react with a capacitive touchscreen. It wasn't much, but it helped immensely when it came to the game. Basically, you had to draw something and have your friend guess the correct word it was assigned to. Draw Something's parent company, OMG Pop, was bought and merged into Zynga, and their original website is very defunct now. The Wikipedia article for the game reads almost like an epitaph. Draw Something 2 exists, but I don't know anyone who plays it. It was truly a flash in the pan. Speaking of grafting features onto the iPad, I bought an app called Air Display on March 26th. Akin to Apple's universal control feature, or the third-party Duet Display app of modern times, Air Display was the OG method of turning your iPad into a portable second monitor for a laptop. I remember it came in handy and paired well with a MacBook Air. On March 30th, we had received an invite to discuss the future of the information technology program at the university, that of which I was part of the very first graduating class of about 12 people. We were converted from the computer science program, and at times things felt like they were a bit of a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants construction. I totally understand why, as it was a brand new major, and our program had recognized this as well, thus the invitation for an open forum on April 19th to discuss how they could improve for future students. So if you're in that major now, I guess you can thank me in part. It was getting close to commencement time. The cap and gown was ordered on April 4th, and most of my inbox during this time was littered with shot-in-the-dark applications, registrations with career websites, headhunter leads, and post-college seminar newsletters. The off-ramp from college into the real world was approaching fast, and the turn signal had officially started blinking. I'm sure I'll touch more on this in a few episodes down the road. Alright, I think that should adequately wrap up these two weeks. There was a lot going on, both in regards to things learned, and in terms of mid-spring semester craziness. In the next episode, we'll soldier on through April and see what else happens. Thanks for listening to another show here on Things Learned. 
If this is the first one you've listened to, I'm glad you tried out the podcast. And if you're interested, check out the other episodes. If you're a returning listener, I thank you as always for coming along for the ride. If you can help me out and give this show a rating on Apple Podcasts, it would help with visibility and overall awareness. If you're interested in additional details on these topics, I'll put some links in the show notes detailing what I talked about wherever I can. Music credits will go there as well. Until next time, have fun learning things, and may we meet again in the next episode.